Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another edition of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, we're going to talk about Nancy Pelosi taking a big, big step toward reclaiming the gavel as Speaker of the House. How did she manage to turn back so many vocal critics in this round of the speakership fight? That's one key question we're going to answer. But we're also going to talk about the hurdles that remain uh, in place in front of her uh, in her battle to reclaim that speaker's gavel. Plus, the Mueller investigation seems to be heating up in a big way again. The president's one-time lawyer was back in court, this time admitting he lied to Congress about Donald Trump's business dealings in Russia. So we're going to connect some of the dots on stuff that happened with the Mueller investigation this week. And there's a lot more besides that that we're going to talk through. As always, and given that we're talking about the Mueller investigation, this feels particularly important. We're taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday. That's November the 29th. So it's all up to date as of then. All right, let's jump right into it. I want to welcome our first guests. Joining us from Capitol Hill, we have two intrepid members of Politico's congressional team. Rachel Bade, thank you for joining us. And Heather Cagle, great to have you on as well, Heather. Thank you. All right, on to our first data point, 32. 32 members of the Democratic caucus voted against Nancy Pelosi this week as she bid for her party's leadership uh, once again. And now 32 is a very small fraction of the uh, 230-some who are going to be uh, in there. And so that that's, that's a, something of a win for her, even if it means that she still has some work to do between now and that uh, speaker's vote that's going to be happening at the beginning of the next Congress in January. Uh, so, Rachel, start us off. How is it that almost three dozen Democrats voting against Pelosi is good news for her? Yeah, so you're right. Yesterday was sort of a test vote to gauge how much opposition she has right now and how much um, wooing she's going to have to do in the next five weeks. And the sort of uh, takeaway we all had from yesterday was that she's got momentum. If you look back at 2016, Pelosi actually lost 63 votes in this same sort of test vote in caucus um, when she was running for minority leader. And, you know, now she's losing 32. That's almost half of that. Um, but again, she's not there yet. She's going to need 218 votes on the House floor on January um, in early January to actually get the speaker's gavel. And she can only lose 17 members in that vote. Um, but, you know, yesterday she had 32 who voted against her. Now, the difference is a lot of the members who voted yesterday, from what we understand, were just sort of incoming freshmen who wanted to check the box to say, you know, I voted against Nancy Pelosi. The party found or nominated Pelosi to be speaker, and I had to back the nominee. So there's going to be probably about 10 of those who voted against her yesterday who will probably back her on the floor from our understanding. And Pelosi is also picking off members of this sort of rebel group that's trying to push her out. You know, she won Marsha Fudge, who had floated her name to challenge Pelosi 
uh, just a couple of weeks ago. She has run Brian, uh, Brian Higgins and even is picking off um, a Massachusetts Democrat named Stephen Lynch, um, who came out of a meeting with her yesterday saying he was very close to a deal with Pelosi. So in the meantime, she's picking people off and her numbers are looking good. But again, she's not there yet. Right. And then it's all because you know all you have to do is win a majority to to uh, in in this closed door vote of your own party to become, you know, the nominee for speaker, but to become speaker, you actually have to win a majority vote on the House floor. And that obviously includes right. a lot of Republicans who are going to be voting against her. Um, Heather, can you take us inside uh, the, the the process a little bit of what what's Pelosi doing to as she's trying to pick off one by one some of these detractors, whether uh, and, and it seems like we've really got three categories almost right. We've got uh, some some longtime members who have been big critics of hers and and some other incumbents who um, who have kind of signed on to that over the last six months or so, but but you know have, have not been quite as vociferous in their opposition to her. And then we've got newly elected members who were saying on the campaign trail in 2018 that they would not vote for Pelosi for speaker. Or I should say some of them said that, and others kind of called more vaguely for new leadership, which I guess is an important distinction. Right. And so those three camps, it's really important to remember that when you're going through the list and you're thinking, okay, there's 16 folks who signed a letter saying they're not going to vote for her. And then there's another five to six to seven, depending on how you count, mostly freshmen who didn't sign the letter, but have previously said, "I'm, I'm voting no on the floor. And so there's around 20, 22 Democrats right now who say they're going to vote no on the floor. But like you said, there are those three distinct camps. So what Pelosi's doing is she's basically going down a list and she's looking at these three camps and she's thinking, okay, how can I pick up, pick off enough of these that I can get to 218. And she knows that in the camp of quote-unquote never Nancyers like Kathleen Rice, Seth Moulton, Tim Ryan, those folks are probably not going to vote for her no matter what. And so I don't think that she's spending too much time or capital trying to woo them to her side. She did have a meeting with the three of them Wednesday, which we reported and um, it didn't go well. She was, <laughs> they, they went in and they said, we want to know when you're stepping down. And she basically dismissed them. And from what we were told, went on essentially a 30-minute monologue about how her political accomplishments, how she'll raise more money than anyone for the vulnerable freshmen, and how 2020 is a presidential year and no one's going to care about the speaker anyway. So that's where it is. That being said, though, she hasn't totally ruled them out. We have been told from some sources that um, some donors and folks like that have reached out to someone like Kathleen Rice and made a pitch for Pelosi. Um, so that's basically what she's doing. She's trying to apply different various pressure points to members of the three camps and seeing how she can peel some people off. And folks like Brian Higgins and Marsha Fudge, they wanted something very specific. Brian Higgins wanted a promise that she would work on his legislative priorities. Marsha Fudge wanted a committee, a subcommittee chairmanship. And that's where Pelosi's longevity as Democratic leader, I mean, she's been at the top for 16 years, 18 if she's elected speaker, really comes in handy because she has all these little political chits that she can, you know, deal out to people. So that's where we're at now. She's looking at each member, figuring out what their pressure point is, and she's really squeezing them and hoping that she'll get a few more to peel off and get to 218. That's really interesting. And now the other consideration here that that I've been wondering about for so long, having watched these campaigns develop around the country in 2018, is, is the folks who said that 
the, who, who specifically said in some in debates, some in TV ads, some in newspaper interviews on the campaign trail that that they would not back her for speaker, that they would would go to Washington and not back Pelosi. But R- Rachel, you, you mentioned something interesting a few minutes ago. I mean, it, it, some Democrats seem to think that there's wiggle room for these people to say to vote for her on the floor for speaker, even after saying that they wouldn't support her on the campaign trail because they voted against her in the caucus. And, and there, there's this burgeoning argument that they've now covered themselves by voting against her uh, to be the Democratic nominee for speaker. Yeah, uh, Pelosi allies are making that case to a lot of these incoming freshmen. And arguably, it sounds like, you know, they are having some traction or at least a number of incoming freshmen who said point blank, I'm not going to vote for Pelosi are considering this. Um, hmm. Take, for example, uh, Mikey Sherrill, who you know spe- was very specific on the campaign trail, saying she would not support Pelosi. You grab her in the hallway, um, you know, this week, the prior week, and you know, since they've come to Washington for orientation, she is not saying that anymore, and in fact, is refusing to say at all how she's going to vote for Pelosi. And from my understanding, allies have Pelosi allies have sort of been working on her to say, you know, if you vote against. Pelosi and caucus and then vote something like present on the floor, um, you can go back to your constituents and say, I tried to get I tried to get new leadership and I couldn't. The party decided decided and I had to back the Democrat. But I don't know how I don't know that that's going to give these members cover because, you know, the first ad that Republicans are going to cut is going to be um, some sort of video highlighting what someone like Mikey Sherrill said on the campaign trail with whatever she does on the on the House floor in January. And so I'm not sure that this is really going to protect um, these incoming freshmen the way that some of the Pelosi allies think it will. Pelosi, the Rice, Moulton, and Ryan brought this actually up in their meeting with Pelosi yesterday. They mentioned these freshmen uh, going back on their campaign promises and said this is going to hurt them in 2020. These are the majority makers, um, meaning that if they lose to a Republican, Democrats could lose their majority. And Pelosi's response was, look, I'm going to raise money for them and protect them uh, from any sort of attacks like this. But Pelosi allies think this is no longer an effective attack against Democrats. They note that you know, there was a 40 seat pickup um, in this midterm election. And that's despite all these ads, hundreds and hundreds of ads that Republicans have run against these candidates. But again, these Democratic candidates said on the trail that they weren't going to back Pelosi or that they were going to push for new leadership. So I don't, you know, I don't know how effective voting against her in caucus and then going on the floor and backing her. I don't know. It's going to be really tough for them to message back home. I yeah, I'm I'm inclined to agree with that, Heather. I'm I'm curious what you think. And I, again, there, there's just something so uh, specific about this. First of all, that that there will be video of them standing up, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the, this this vote for speaker is taken. One the clerk calls them one by one by one, and they stand up and say who they're voting for, right? And so there's going to be video of them doing this. And and I just wonder, you know, I I know that Democrats have been saying, and there's probably some evidence that the the attack ads linking them to Pelosi that they've faced for so long are less effective than they used to be. But there's also an element here of if they vote for, if you know, if there's this video of them voting for Pelosi after saying that they wouldn't, it's not really about Pelosi anymore. It's about their, it's about their campaign promise at that point. Yeah, I agree. I mean, just think about it. You know, we're in D.C. and so we're immersed in this political atmosphere and how things work up on the Hill. But if you're the average voter in New Jersey or wherever and you're just trying to live your day-to-day life and you try to keep up with what's happening in D.C., but, you know, like a normal person would – 
are you going to understand the difference between, well, I voted no in caucus, but then I had to vote yes on the floor? I mean, there's no easy way to explain that. Meanwhile, you have the Republican House campaign arm cutting a quick ad with audio side by side of Mikey Sherrill or whoever saying, I'm not going to vote for Pelosi and then standing up and voting for Pelosi. I mean, I'm not saying she's going to do that, but if one of these people, like you said, did it, there's the ad. It writes itself. And mm-hmm. that's going to connect with people a lot easier. And I think some of these most more vulnerable freshmen are aware of that. And Pelosi allies, Rachel's totally right. They are making this case to people that you can vote no in caucus and yes on the floor and be okay. But I also think they're aware of it, too. And they are pressuring some of these incumbent members who have said they're going to vote no against Pelosi. And they're saying to them privately, well, you're not allowing these freshmen to keep their campaign promises on the floor, and you'll be the reason that we lose their seats if you force them to have to vote yes. To now, that's really interesting. Give that, her the speakership. That, that's Pelosi, the legislative strategist, right, who, like, in, in 09 and 10, you know, basically just wanted to get the 218 or 220 to be able to pass, you know, cap and trade or health care or what have you, right, but was willing to let let people... So that there's a sense that they kind of want to let some of these freshmen do what's best for them, but they need to get the room from some of the incumbents. Exactly. And so they're trying to, some allies of her, they're trying to put this guilt trip on the incumbents. And I think for some, it definitely weighs on their mind. For others, like we talked about earlier, there are folks who, incumbents who are just going to vote no, because they have some personal animosity towards Pelosi for whatever reason. And and they look at her and they make the counter argument back to her. They're like, well, if you weren't speaker or if you would talk about a transition plan, you would take away the Republican ammo. So, you know, it kind of goes both ways. Hmm. Interesting. Really, really quickly, uh, I'm, I'm curious, both of you, what are kind of the guideposts that you're looking at over the next, uh, what, four or five weeks we have between uh, right now and and the speakership vote of what what we ought to be looking for, what developments we can expect uh, as Pelosi tries to whittle down the, that number of detractors to somewhere where she can become Speaker of the House again. One of the things I'm watching um, is the signers of this letter. You know, there was this, uh, the rebel camp put out this letter saying that none of the signers are going to vote for Pelosi on the House floor. There were about 16 signers at the time. At least one, if not another one, is about to come off and and support Pelosi after she has flipped them. Um, I'm curious to see if Pelosi is able to pick more of these people off this letter and get them to endorse her. And the thing that's interesting about this is that this group of rebels, this group of, you know, Pelosi critics, they had all vowed together at one point or another that they were not going to sell out for committee posts. They were not going to sell out for, you know, a, a promise from Pelosi that she's going to put a bill, uh, one of their pet bills on the floor next Congress. Um, but now we're starting to see people open up and say they're open to deals. Um, so that's something I'm personally watching as we move forward. And I think another thing we have to keep in mind is that beyond the signers of this letter, the 15 or 16 that are left, um, there's a group of silent people um, who are not talking publicly about their vote, but who are leaning against Pelosi and and Mm -hmm. thinking about voting against her on the floor. People like uh, Ron Kind, who voted against Pelosi on the floor in 2016, um, but is now not, he didn't sign this letter and he's not really saying publicly what he's going to do. But a lot of people think he might vote against her and she's trying to pick off people like that as well. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think exactly what Rachel said. It's kind of our job right now is just we have our own informal list, the letter signers who are public, and then the five to six others who are the silent no's. And we're kind of just trying to bug as many as we can each day and see, you know, are you wobbling? Are, are you meeting with Pelosi? Like any kind of indication that they're trying to move towards yes. And it's that's where we are. And she needs to pick off. She can lose 17 votes on the floor, like Rachel said earlier. So she needs to pick off probably like five or six more. Um, I think from just our reporting, it seems like she wants to do that sooner rather than later. She does not want to spend the next month with this being the storyline. So we're kind of keeping track and trying to see if anything starts to move faster than people are thinking it will. Got it. And yet I guarantee that we will be writing a Pelosi story pretty much every day for the next five weeks. <laughs> yeah. Well, along those lines, I'm, I'm going to let you guys go and run, run back to, to covering the story. Thank you so much for taking the time out to, to talk to us about it uh, in, in between your, uh, your, your reporting. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Happy to be here. All right. We're going to move on to our next data point now, which is the number seven. That is the number of people from whom special counsel Robert Mueller has secured guilty pleas so far. That's after Michael Cohen, the president's former lawyer, admitted in court this morning that he lied to Congress about President Donald Trump's business dealings in Russia. Now, this seven number, this does not include uh, other folks who had wrongdoing uncovered by Mueller's team, but who uh, were prosecuted by other parts of the Department of Justice. And that actually also includes Michael Cohen, who uh, a lot of listeners will recall previously pled guilty uh, to some other stuff in the Southern District of New York. Now, because of that, uh, Cohen's been off the radar a little bit. He had already pled guilty. I think people weren't necessarily thinking about him so much. And so this new guilty plea kind of came out of left field a little bit. So here to unpack it this morning, we have Kyle Cheney, who covers the Mueller investigation and many, many, many other things for Politico. He's on the line to help talk us through exactly what this is. Hi, Kyle. Good morning, Scott. Good to be here. <laughs> All right. So let's jump right in. Kyle, bring us up to speed on the latest on Michael Cohen, the president's long-term personal lawyer who has basically turned on the president now and, and just entered this new guilty plea this morning. Sure. So, I mean, Michael Cohen had already pleaded guilty to some campaign finance related issues in, in New York. And so this one was kind of out of left field. He's apparently been cooperating with special counsel Mueller uh, and agreed to plead guilty to a count of lying to Congress uh, about his work on getting a Trump Tower Moscow deal uh, during the campaign. Uh, he had told Congress that, that he stopped working on that in January 2016, just as the, the primaries got underway. Uh, and in reality, he's now saying uh, he worked on it for much longer than that and much deeper into the 2016 election. So what, what, is, what does that mean in, ter- in, the, in terms of the rest of the investigation? Like, how does, how does the fact that, that Cohen was apparently still pushing for a, a Trump po- project in Moscow affect everything else? Well, you talk to Democrats on the Hill here and they're, you know, saying we have to investigate this right away once we take over in the new Congress because it casts into doubt a lot of President Trump's, you know, repeated denials about any business relationships with Russia. And then that puts in a different light sort of all these questions about Russian collusion and what kind of motive would be there if there were was any collusion uh, in terms of helping Russia interfere in the 2016 election. Um, and does president, the president have any ongoing business relationships in Russia? They just can't take his word at face value, especially when you have his personal lawyer saying, well, stuff we were saying about this in the past wasn't true. 
does does Cohen's uh, switch on this that he now admits that 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 he was lying and and, and that this was going on? Does that uh, potentially put other members of the Trump circle in jeopardy of a similar charge of lying to Congress or lying to federal investigators about the same thing? It does. And in some ways, the most explosive part of this is probably the stuff we don't know, because Cohen is currently cooperating with Mueller. Uh, He pleaded to this particular charge, which is why we know about it. But who knows what else they're discussing, what documents and and recordings Cohen is providing. But one of the things that stuck out in this one was Cohen said he had been briefing members of the Trump family about this Trump Tower Moscow deal much for much later into the campaign than he acknowledged uh, previously. And so we don't know who those family members are or if any of them testified to Congress about uh, their role. And now all those all that testimony is going to be compared uh, to see, you know, who said what, when does it all match up? Got it. Okay, that that is that is pretty interesting. I think what what you said about the the explosive stuff being what, what we don't know that that's kind of the the motto, the unofficial motto always, of the Mueller investigation. The Mueller right? investigation. I, and I, I think it's really remarkable, even in a week like this where we've seen so much new information broken in the news about this, uh, j- just how the, there's this iceberg sense of of what it is, right? That you know we've got this little tip sticking out above the water, but but who knows what what lies underneath still. Right, in our capacity to be surprised by the Mueller investigation going on for a year and a half at this point, uh, and the FBI started the Russia investigation a year before that, um, we still have this capacity to be shocked and, and sort of uh, caught off guard by by revelations uh, that are just coming out that we hadn't that weren't even on the radar you know, weeks or months ago. Yeah. So the this this Cohen plea is just the latest in in a whole string of developments this week. I think it, you know if we rewind back to the beginning, uh, there there were some new ones about Paul Manafort, Trump's former campaign chairman, too. Can you walk us through those? Sure. So uh, Paul Manafort uh, had pleaded guilty uh, in a money laundering trial and pledged to cooperate with Special Counsel Mueller too, which was considered a big uh, coup for the Special Counsel. But this earlier this week, the Special Counsel moved to vacate that plea deal because he said. Manafort just kept on lying even after reaching the deal. He kept lying to us. Uh, and so in addition to, you know, put, you know, getting him on additional crimes, uh, we no longer want this plea agreement. Uh, and we learned that Manafort had actually been in communication. His lawyers had been in communication with the president's lawyers. And so there's some questions about was this really just an attempt to get some insight uh, into the Mueller investigation? Is he playing for a pardon with Trump who has not ruled out doing so? Uh, so that that sort of was a flashpoint in the investigation. Yeah. And uh, for, for any of you who missed our Thanksgiving episode last week, I mean, we spent the whole time talking specifically about this issue of how Trump has used pardons in his presidency so far and how uh, the the manner in which he's done that has hung over the Mueller investigation a little bit with this sense that who knows if he could you know, end up offering pardons. But but Trump basically came out and said this week that he has not ruled out pardoning Paul Manafort. Right. And there's a sense that some of the earlier pardons were test cases here, like, you, you know, when he's pardoned political allies and he's circumvented the standard process that DOJ uses to vet pardons. Joe Arpaio, I think, being like the principal right. example of the, that. Right? And then Dinesh D'Souza as well. Uh you know, people that are darlings of the conservative base or the Trump base, at least. And he was testing to see what the backlash would be, uh, especially with the Republican Congress. A little harder to do with the Democratic Congress, but he's got a template out there now for uh, using his own process to grant pardons. I want to go back to something you mentioned uh, briefly just a second ago about how Democrats on the Hill are taking in all this new information just this week. Um, 
can can you tell us more about how they are reacting to that and and you know are are they geared up to to hand down a bunch of subpoenas in the first week of January to start investigating this or how how do they uh, accommodate you know, their thirst for for more information about all this and the fact that part of what Mueller is investigating at this point is people lying to Congress how how do they accommodate that with the fact that you know you don't want to be in, interfering with the ongoing investigation I think it's going to be more of a tension point than people realize. And I also think there's going to be a frustration for people who expect this tsunami of subpoenas to come down because it's going to take a lot longer uh, than people realize. You know, they have to get organized. They have to appoint committee members. They have to actually go through a process to justify the subpoenas. You know, they have to re- in- invite people to offer testimony voluntarily first and give them a, a real amount of, reasonable amount of time to do that. Then they can, you know, issue subpoenas if they're not cooperating. Um, and so it's going to take a while. Uh, but I think they're they're looking at these developments. Number one, they don't know what the landscape's going to look like on January 3rd when they take over. This all happened since the election, and the whole landscape looks different now and collusion and everything. And who knows what happens in the next five weeks before they take over? I mean, who knows what happens tomorrow, right? Tomorrow, right, they, right. It's so Friday. They, who knows if there'll be Trump an indictment could, Friday or not? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, Jeff Sessions was still the attorney general the day after the election, um, you know, and the fact that Trump appointed someone to replace him who people are worried could interfere with Mueller with a whole new development, you know, wh- who knows if, if there is some pressure there. To, to, to meddle in, in the investigation and uh, whether there will be a Mueller investigation in January. Um, so it's a whole lot that can change before the Dems t- actually get any power. Knowing that and, ha- and how nebulous uh, th- this all is and how you know, we're, we're, we're all kind of at the mercy of, of the, the, the special counsel and what they decide to, to do next, how do, you, how do you as someone covering this prepare for, well, you know, what are you preparing to turn to now uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in the next bit of coverage? It's, well, we are talking to the Democrats because they will wield the gavels of all these important investigative committees in January and sort of asking them basically how they operate in this environment. And so you talk to someone like Adam Schiff, who's going to run the House Intelligence Committee, and he says, look, I'm going to bring Michael Cohen in to testify as soon as possible. Uh, I want to look at money laundering and whether the Trump organization was, was uh, laundering money, Russian money, uh, during the campaign. Uh, and, and that's a, a big target that hasn't really been aired publicly. So regardless of what Mueller does with that, it's something that's going to be there for him when he's here in January. Uh, and he, he basically says, I'm just going to revisit whatever doesn't get answered by the time we take over. If stuff gets answered or indictments come down, then, you know, we can't deal with that stuff because that's in Mueller's court. But outstanding questions, things we tried to pursue and got st- stymied on uh, by Republicans or by the Trump administration, uh, we're going to pick those up and run with them as soon as we take the gavel. All right. Well, Kyle, I'm going to let you pick back up and run with your your reporting on the the Cohen stuff today. Thank you so much for for joining us for a few minutes here. Absolutely, Scott. Thanks so much. And as always, a big thank you to you listeners for tuning in this week. Our producer this week is Dave Shaw, with help from Adrian Hurst. Nerdcast illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like the Nerdcast, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you once again so much for listening this week. We'll talk to you again next week.